You're listening to the Corporate Quitter Podcast, where it's all about exploring possibilities for making an honest living outside of the traditional nine to five. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the very first episode of Corporate Quitter. We're really excited about this. Today's episode is not only special because obviously it's the first one we're recording, but also because our guest, drumroll, is Aaron Azarod, the host and founder of Truth Island. He's actually the person who inspired the creation of this podcast in the first place and unintentionally mentored me as I, you know, was working my way through this, figuring out what platforms to use, what, you know, microphone, all the things. So, um, Aaron, I'm so excited to have you on. <laughs> Great to be here, Gabby. Um, let me just say I'm very excited to be here on your show for a number of reasons. I'm honored that you selected me to be here on the premiere episode. I'm also excited because this is actually going to be my very first podcast that I don't have to edit. And that feels really awesome. You'll you'll understand that as you go <laughs> along. <laughs> I know. I was looking at the, you know, the Audacity program yesterday and Brielle was with me and she was like, oh my God, this is so, so cool. And it is. But it's also like, it's very daunting and I could just only imagine the amount of hours that I'm going to put into actually editing this, but I'm hoping it I'll looks so it complicated. I, I'm sure when you're listening to the third hour of our audio, you know, you'll be just fine. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll have a drink. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess to jump into this. Um, so Aaron and I have known each other for oh, not a year, but almost a year. Um, yeah. So we've gotten to know each other pretty well. But uh, one of the reasons why Aaron and I um, really connected in the beginning was we used to both be teachers. And obviously now at this point, we've both strayed away from that traditional, you know, job and, and the whole nine to five and, and just educating as a whole. So um, Aaron, do you want to touch on that a little bit, just your experience and kind of your takeaways? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I kind of fell into teaching uh, a, about a year out of college. I was a, a political science major as undergrad, um, but I always had a very keen interest in philosophy. You know, I was always obsessed with like uh, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, Plato. And in college, I was often a part of uh, something called the Philosophy Club, where, you know, a bunch of us guys and a few gals would get along and just debate things, debate things all day long and uh, order pizza and play uh, Settlers of Catan. And those that was one of, I, I would say, like a, a very like important and happy time in my life. Um, I, I really felt like my public speaking skills, my, the, my critical thinking, my thought process really just became developed. I think, I think that I had spent a lot of time thinking in my own head, but there's really something to be said about talking with others and like getting that feedback. Or sometimes you have this idea in your head, Gabby, I don't know if you've ever had this, where you have this like really brilliant idea in your head, but then as soon as you tell somebody, you realize, oh crap, there's a thousand holes in it. Literally every time Brielle and I talk about an idea, we like, it's the same exact thing. We're like, oh my God, that sounds so great. And Brielle's like, mm, maybe we should rethink that through. Brielle's like, oh my God, this is an amazing idea. And then I'm like, mm, maybe we've got to rethink this. It just <laughs> constantly, right? It's like, you ever hear people who they, they like, I don't want to say it, but like they get stoned and they write something, some amazing idea they have down, like on the closest piece of paper. And the next day they look, they look at it and it says like potato or something, like something so stupid. Constant. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think every, like when you're in solitude, like any, every idea seems amazing and awesome, but you don't really know what you have, whether it's like gold or whether it's poo-poo. 
until you kind of bring it to the other people's attention. And I think that process was really transformative in my own life because I kind of got better at communicating, articulating myself, and also realizing what thoughts were really sticky and needed to go and what thoughts needed to evolve further. And that all happened as a result of you bar- like being part of that philosophy group, basically? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it was like, I, I kind of was, you know, in high school, I didn't really have too many friends. I wasn't like the most popular kid in school. So I didn't really have too many people to talk to. But I think I really kind of shined a lot in college. Like I, I found people that were really into the niche topics and ideas that I wanted to talk about. And it's really funny because I, I would definitely characterize myself as an introvert, which is sort of weird because I, I run a podcast, which basically is predicated. How ironic. On, yeah, right. Like, my, <laughs> like I am, I am the ultimate introvert. But what I notice is that when I'm talking about things that I'm deeply interested in, like I can go on for hours and hours and hours and hours. I'm actually really, really, really bad with small talk. So like, if we're going to talk about like going shopping or talking about what restaurants, like, I don't have too much to say, but when you get me in my element, I just keep going on and on. And I didn't know at the time, but I realized that when you, when you kind of like evaluate your life, it's really important to notice those times where you're shining and time is just really going by. Cause you know, sometimes I would enter the philosophy of it would be like, you know, like, oh, like it would be like 1030 at night. And I wouldn't even realize that time was going by. I didn't realize that at the moment, but those kind of moments in your life where time just zooms on by are really important. And it's really important to kind of keep those in mind when you're thinking about a career, when you're thinking about what it is that you should be doing with yourself. Yeah. I've noticed that those are the moments where the most gold is, so to speak, or the things that I want to follow the most is when I, I'm not looking at my phone. I can, you know, I'm not worried about social media. I'm just like in the zone, so to speak. That's when I know I'm on the right path. But to your point of saying like being in that zone, did you find that you had that when you were teaching or did you have that more when you're podcasting? Like what, what was the, the, the difference between the two in that flow state, if you will? Yeah, absolutely. So I fell into teaching, I would say about a year out of um, college. I had worked for the New York City Law Department for about a year as a paralegal and I had entertained law school, but a lot of people were going to law school at the time and coming out with like six figures in debt and not really all that happy. I remember I was working in the law department one day and and this, this guy, this older gentleman came out of his office and he just looked at me and he said, I hate being here. And I was like, great, this, this looks like a, a career that I shouldn't Promising, be Promising, happy career. Yeah, I, I, think, I, think when some, <laughs> I think when a lawyer comes out of their office and tells you just point blank, like, I hate you. And like the way he said it is like the whole hallway could hear him saying that. I'm like, great, that, that looks really encouraging, yeah. <laughs> so, so I did that. No yeah, law ahead. school. So then, what so then happened? what happened is I, I fell into the, I was kind of at this uh, career fair and I had been doing a lot of tutoring. So I had been doing a lot of tutoring in college. Like I'm really good at editing papers or, you know, helping, helping people like proofreading and doing that kind of stuff or even brainstorming. So I figured, all right, well, I, I definitely have like, you know, a, a decent shot at, at perhaps teaching. It really happened when I was at a career fair. I was attending Hunter College and I saw this um, booth, this like kiosk that was set up for a program called the New York City Teaching Fellows. And I signed up. They were in need of special ed teachers. They were in need of history teachers. So I applied 
they had a very like from what I actually did not think it was going to pan through because they actually have a pretty high rejection rate. Uh, but I went there, they made me basically come up with a five minute demonstration lesson. It's like, right, you can actually tell if someone's going to be a good or bad teacher within five minutes makes makes a lot of sense, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I go up there, I have my five minute demonstration lesson. And, and somehow, I, I guess I won someone over there, someone was a fan of me. And, you know, they offered me the position. And what was cool about it is that it was a two year commitment. And they actually gave you a subsidized master's degree. So I thought that was cool that, you know, I kind of get this free master's degree, I get to enter teaching. And I would say that I love history, by the way. So, you know, the fact that they were putting me in as, as a history teacher, they were giving me that certification was a huge plus. Like, I'm like, great. I get to talk about what it is that I love all day long, right? Like, like this is, this is going to yeah. be, I, my, 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 like, I was like 22 years old at the time. And I was like, I get to be in the philosophy club as a living, you know, like <laughs> literally like doing exactly what you wanted to do, but in the form of like an actual job, it's probably, I think the goal for every single person. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I just, I just thought like, I'm going to be able to talk about world war two. I'm going to be able to uh, talk about whatever it is I want all day long. Little did I know that like, unlike the philosophy club, teenagers are a lot different than, you know, college students who voluntarily come to do something, right? Because it's you like, may... <laughs> you, it's, no, it's funny because people, you know, they're thinking, oh, they can take care of themselves. Like it's so much easier versus dealing with children who are either like toddlers and you're dealing with like, you know, teaching them their ABCs and the basics. And then you have to like literally wipe their ass, maybe like pull, pull the boogers <laughs> out of their nose, like the grossness of like, you're almost like being a parent and teaching at the same time. But you know, it's kind of nice when you're not getting back talk and being ignored and like all the things that teenagers love to do because they're like, I don't give a shit, you know, yeah. no one prepared, no one probably prepared you for that at all. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Like I, I kind of had this vision in my head that I would walk in there and everyone would be, and look, I was like, I looked really young at the time. Like, you know, like I, there were students that I had that were like 20, like they had been left back a couple times and I was 22. So I'm like, for all intensive purposes, we're like basically the same age when I start doing this. So like, I think, I think in my head, I'm going to be so funny. I'm going to be so cool, laid back, like what, whatever it is that, that I thought everything that I thought that I was, I was not. And for the first year or two, it really, really, really sucked and was like ultra painful, especially like classroom management, because, you know, my like natural disposition is to be very like easygoing. But as a teacher, you actually have to be the complete opposite of that. You have to micromanage, yeah. you have to be really on top of everything, every, every little, the way a kid goes to the tissue box, the way that they ask to go to the bathroom, you have to be monitoring all of that stuff. And it's not enough to just love history or be knowledgeable in your content. There's a whole other like uh, skill of managing people that you kind of also have to develop as well. Oh yeah. And that's like, that's a skill that goes across all industries. I mean, even as myself, as you know, Brielle and I are in the process of building this business, let's say we get to the point where scaling and we have to hire an assistant or, or some other person, like what is the fine line between being chill and like, yes, being easygoing and having a pleasant like work, you know, relationship. And then also being firm and setting boundaries and creating deadlines and being hard on them when they need to do what they're, you know, they need to do. And this is the same thing with teaching. Like, there is no magic pill to fix that. It's just, you know, experience and it's not easy. 
Yeah, it's not you, easy at all to do that. You totally cannot be that person that's like, yeah, how do you feel about that? Or, oh, I, I see. You know, you really, like, I think that the teachers that really go the furthest in their career are just, the like, th there was this one lady that I worked with in my first year, and, and she had, uh, I'll make her story real quick. She was like a really no-nonsense teacher, and she was hated by the principal, hated by the kids, hated by parents, you know, September, October, November, December, January. But by the time like March rolled around, she was the most beloved teacher because she was the one that had like the standards. Like she's the one that kept the kids to like a high standard. And what ends up happening is that that becomes the figure that the kids trust because they know that that person isn't just telling them what they want to hear. They're actually telling them what they need to hear. And I, I actually just watching her evolution through. And what's amazing about this lady is that she kind of, had to pick it up all over and do it again every single year. So every single year she went through this gauntlet of being hated throughout the first half of the year, but then being loved in the second half of the year. So I learned a lot. And thankfully, like I actually did get better at teaching. And I, I think that helped a lot too. Yeah, that's a good point. I, you know, as you were saying that, I was kind of trying to think back to my own schooling and like Brielle and I went to the same school. So we had a lot of the same teachers. And honestly, I can't think of anyone right now who was like, as firm as this woman that you're speaking of, like who had this, the discipline to know what was right so that when her, when her students came to take tests and kind of finish up the school year, they were better prepared than the other kids because she did what she was, I don't want to say supposed to do, but like she did a really good job of like holding her tongue and doing what was necessary to basically have them succeed, right? Yeah. You know, one, one kind of like, you know, we kind of think of uh, teenagers as being ultra rebellious, which they are but they actually really, really, really crave discipline. And, you know, the word discipline in our modern culture has such a bad connotation. Like we think of discipline as being cruelty. We have this vision of like nuns hitting kids with rulers and such, but it's not, they're actually not the same. Like you can have discipline and be strict, but not be a cruel person. There is like this, this magical line to work and the teachers that know how to uh, walk that line are really, you know, they can be really successful actually. Yeah. And I think that's, again, that's just another thing that people need to learn. That's not an easy skill to kind of grasp fully unless you're really in it. But I mean, we have the same thing too, with like, again, building a business, like there is a level of discipline and self-commitment that's necessary every single day to put into it, to make sure that, you know, the Instagram posts are being done in the blog posts and we're making the connections and building out the product and all these things. So it, it's definitely not easy but it'll be well worth it once we're there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, to continue on my journey here, uh, you know, I switched schools. I found one school that um, I really liked, at least in the beginning. And I, I really, like, in my third, fourth, and fifth year of teaching, I really uh, hit the ground running. And I, I became a lot better. I, came, I, I really thought and I came up with visions of how I wanted to see things unfold in the classroom. And I was also blessed to have, um, you know, we spoke on my podcast yesterday about one of my mentors, like I had a really good mentor at the time. And I also had a, a really wonderful supportive principal. She was like, as hard as nails, like she would uh, walk the hallways with these high heels and you would hear her coming and everyone would be like, Oh my God, the principal's coming, you know, which is actually a really good thing. <laughs> you actually, if you're working in a school, you really, you want to kind of fear the principal. It's actually a positive thing because, um, you know, she was very hard on the teachers, hard on the students, but she actually did come from a loving place and she was hard because she wanted the best for her staff and she wanted the best for the kids. Like she wanted, like, you know, this was a school in the Bronx and she was able to get some of these kids to like get into schools like Cornell and, and, and other like high profile schools. And 
you really can't do that with like, all right, guys, just just chill out. And today's going to be another movie day. You know, you just you can't you can't get kids into the Ivy League with that kind of attitude. And I really respected her. I worked my butt off for this lady. You know, I worked every day was like 12, 14 hours. But this was one this was a part in my life where I could see the results. Like I, I helped kids pass like their if you grew up in New York, you're familiar with the New York Regents exams. I helped totally. kids pass Hated those. Them. Yeah, right. Hated like, them. 50 multiple choice, uh, two essays, short answers, the works. And I got there kids. Was a way to make me feel dumb. That was it. <laughs> that was like the icing on the cake. End of the year. Get a nice big fat date. Yeah, I passed. Like, great. <laughs> you know, and I was teaching global history at the time. And global history, you know, is actually one of the most failed regents exams of all the history of all the regents exams. It's the most failed because it's a it's a two year course. Oh, you're laughing. You failed Honestly, it? that was the only one that I did well on. I think it's so cool. Like the Aztecs and the Mayans. And the yeah, Egyptians and yeah, like, right. So uh, I, that's a whole other thing we can talk about. But so so can okay, you be so my student right now? Um, Uh, so was the turning point for you as you were like again teaching these kids and watching them grow like from what you're saying right now after you hit the ground running it seems like it was like it seemed like it was great like you were really really enjoying it yeah absolutely so there there were you know I want to focus a little bit on the good because with every career you know I I look back and there's always some good like I don't want to be this ultra cynical guy and be like oh my god every day was prison I went through a decade of incarcerate you know I'm like no 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 let's calm down here so I I would say that I I was doing really well um and you know I I don't want to be completely cynical here and make it seem like every day was thunder clouds and lightning and terrible. So there were a few good years. Um, most notably, I think my best year, I had 100% of my students pass the United States history regents exam. And that was a huge, huge deal. Even, even other, you know, other teachers can be very competitive and nasty with one another, but even some of the other history teachers came up to me and said, that's amazing. Cause I was able to take some of the lowest performing students in the school and get them to pass this exam. And, you know, to, to get 100% of your kids to pass was really something. And I would say that was the, the apex or the pinnacle of, of my teaching career. What ended up happening is the principal changed and standards started to fall. Uh, the new principal was very loosey goosey, you know, hippy dippy, like, yeah, it's okay. You don't need to behave. And, you know, the behavior of the students started to just completely, you know, corrode around me. And, and I thought, okay, you know, like maybe, maybe if I just teach somewhere else that will go away, but I never quite got back my stride. You know, I, I had some other success stories. Like I transitioned into teaching math, um, which is not my strong suit, but in New York City, they really need math teachers. So I, I, I took this position teaching algebra. Algebra is not bad. I, I kind of enjoy teaching it, but I don't have that same passion for math that I do for history. Um, so th- that, that definitely hurt, not teaching the, the thing, the one thing that you are really crazy about and love. And I kind of felt like I, I could do the job competently, um, you know, at my last school, people thought well of me, they liked me, they thought I was a great teacher, I did creative stuff, you know, I had this one assignment where I had my students figure out the appreciation of houses versus cars, which is a cool life lesson, you know, you should know that, See, like, I want to do that, because I don't even know that, I should probably... <laughs> Brielle, we should probably do something on that because I don't even know 
I don't know anything about that. Yeah, this was this was like my uh, mini like this was taking ninth graders and preparing them for life. They probably forgot all about it like three days later, but I tried. <laughs> and what what ends up happening though is I could kind of I was competent and good at my job and I got good performance ratings, but I could see that that passion was 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 really starting to dip. And I really want to share this story with you about this one uh, other older female teacher that I worked with. And I, I think this is going to be really important. I think it's an, an interesting lesson. Um, I was teaching with this, uh, there was this science teacher that, that worked in my school. And, you know, she had uh, taught biology and chemistry. And I, I want to say, I don't know exactly how old she was, but she was probably in her late 50s, early 60s. She was about four years away from retirement, okay? Which is typically a really, you know, you should be in a really happy place when you only got four more years left of work left, right? And I, I'll tell you a little secret about if you're a public school teacher, there is something called uh, TDA or tax deferred annuity. So basically, if you invest into your, we have like a really kick-ass retirement system, a kick-ass pension, and it basically matches your contributions up to 7%, you know, sometimes as high as 8%. That's awesome. Yeah. I, right? At my job, I was doing, I think I got, it was at 3% and then it went to five and I was like, wow, like, wow, 5%. <laughs> but like that took three years of being in the system to actually get that. But seven is awesome. Especially if you're in a career for 30, 40 years, that's a lot, it's a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it's, you know, I, one thing about teaching is that it does have a, a kick-ass pension system and it does have like, if you're really, if you're going up to seven, you know, with matching up to 7% with your tax deferred annuity, you can really walk, if you, if you're doing this for 20, 25 years, you can actually walk away with uh, quite a sum of money. So it, it's not uncommon that if you've been teaching for 20, 25 years, you can walk away with maybe close to $2 million by the time you're ready to retire, which is pretty kick-ass and pretty sweet. Like most 401ks will only match you like, you know, 3% or something. So I was working with this lady and she was in that situation. She had been teaching for about uh, 20 years and, um, you know, she had the kick-ass retirement going for her. She had this ultra cheap rent stabilized apartment in the Lower East Side that she was paying like 750 bucks a month for, right? Like that's pretty, that's like pretty cool. That's nuts, that's <laughs> unheard of. Right? Yeah, so she had this uh, kick-ass apartment for $750 a month, um, you know, the, the great retirement, but she, came into work and she was so miserable like really the kid the kids loved her and she was a good teacher but she was so miserable and you could see that the the passion was gone from her and there was this one moment where she she kind of privately broke down in front of me she just broke down in tears in front of me and she privately told me you know we were alone in the classroom and she told me Aaron I feel as if I've wasted my life. And oh, wait, really? That's so sad. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was like, well, what's going on here? You know, let's talk about this. And, you know, we got to talking, and she told me that she originally had gone to grad school for, you know, I, I believe it was chemistry. It might have been biology. I'm sorry. I, I don't remember. That's what Brielle went to school for. <laughs> and, I think that she was, um, you know, she was, she was 
you know, like she was really good at chemistry. I, I believe it was chemistry, but she was really good at working in a lab. That's what she told me. And all of her professors had encouraged her to get her doctorate. They had encouraged her to, to become a scientist, basically. They had told her, you you need to be a scientist. You're If you don't do this, you're, you're wasting your talent and you're wasting your life. Uh, but for whatever reason, she kind of just fell into teaching, you know, may, maybe a little similar to how I fell into teaching. And, you know, you're earning an okay living, you know, you got your swanky ass studio apartment and you're feeling a good life and you got some money, you got some disposable income now, you know, I mean, going from a grad student to, to, to having disposable income is a huge shift, you know, especially, especially if you're living at home, especially if you got like five roommates or whatever, you know, being able to have your own place and go out drinking and just buy things that you like is really nice. But what happened was, is that one year fell into two years and three years, four years, five years, and then eventually 20 years of your life is gone just just completely gone. And I didn't do anything at the time. Like 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 my behavior didn't change at that time, but this left a a, a lasting impression on me. So like I, when when she told me this, I was like, wow. Wow, that's that you know, when I looked into her eyes, I realized that no matter how big your pension is, no matter all the things, all the, even if you have all the material comforts in the world, like time is something you can just never get back. And I really, I, I like her eyes basically told me that and, and it left a, you know, it, I'm fortunate to have bumped into her and to have had that conversation. So that was the pivotal moment of like, oh my God, like if I don't change something, think like that's where I'm headed. Like was that kind of the light bulb that went off and that's when gear shifted? Now, to be honest, I think that like, I'm not one of these guys who has like a giant revelation. And then the next day I went to work and said, I quit. I'm done. <laughs> you know, I, but what happens That's is <laughs> me. What up? <laughs> like I'm kind of these people that when I, when I hear something, what happens is that it slowly starts to like, it's like basically like, uh, like, like tea, it slowly begins to dilute the water. And, and that's kind of what happens. So I would say Great analogy. That, that, yeah, that she was like, she was like the tea bag and I was the water and her experience kind of diluted me. And I started kind of that, that started to color my picture of what life is. And I think what also helped is at the time I was uh, going for my second master's, I was going for my master's in public policy. And I was actually, and I still am, by the way, contemplating getting my doctorate in, in political science and actually doing what it is that I really want to do. So I think the combination of meeting her, hearing her story, also going to school at night again for another master's that was more in line with what I'm actually interested in. I'm really interested in public policy as as evidenced by all my uh, podcast episodes, I'm always talking about the world. So I, I think having those two things kind of just pushed me. I think, you know, and again, it doesn't, for, for me, I'm the kind of person that doesn't just scratch the itch immediately, but it really started getting me to start thinking about like, what do you want to be like when you're 60? What do you, who, who do you want to be when you're 65 or 70? Where do you see yourself? And I, I, you know, I've talked about this on a previous podcast that a lot of us come up with five-year plans or whatever, and a lot of those tend to just fall apart because life changes. But I think that if you actually come up with a plan of like, what kind of old dude do I want to be, you can actually start planning a lot from there. Yeah, I particularly don't like 
the whole five-year, 10-year plan. I mean, right, it's nice to, I love Earl Nightingale has a recording called like the, I think it's the greatest or the strangest secret in the world. And one of the things he says is, you know, taking the analogy of a boat, if you don't have a destination for the boat, it'll most certainly crash. But if you give it a general destination, you know, a crew, captain, all that, it will make it to the destination, even if it takes a year or two, five, 10. So, and also to stem off that, yes, it's good to have a plan, but I think in a lot of ways we continually change, like the passions I had in high school, completely different than the passions I had in college, which was like tutu making. I was making like EDC outfits, like, yeah, rave. And then like, you know, I turned 25 and I'm like, oh, I just want to do self-help books and like read all this stuff. Like your passions continually change. So if your passions change, your purpose changes, and then your plan will change. All the P's, they all change, you know? So Yes, yes. I've actually, you know, I've read, like I, I've come to, and I think that's a, a really great analogy with the ship. I think that we also have to be aware of our different, there are different types of personality. And I used to be like, oh, there's no such thing as personality or whatever. We can all just change at a drop of it. But I'm starting to realize that one thing that's pretty cons- consistent about me is that I'm a very big picture kind of person. Like I, I love visualizing what it is that I, I want to be and then detail, you know, filling in the blanks downward from there and being like, okay, well, in order to get that, I need to do this and that. And I think when you're a big picture, you know, there's pros and cons to everything. Cause when you're a big picture type of person, you lose track of the details. But one of the positive things are, is that as long as you hold on to that big vision, then you can be a little bit more flexible with those details. So if you're, if you have this goal of like, I want to be this kind of 70 year old, you know, it's okay to work this job for a year or do this and that in order to get there as long as you don't give up. Well, in my experience, sometimes when I was younger, I'd get hung up on those details that I actually never took the action needed to get closer to the big picture. Whereas now I'm kind of, I'm in more flow of like, oh, this is happening at this point. Like it's supposed to be like this, like, this is cool. Like I'm in the middle, like burning in flames, like we're going down, but like, it's all good. Just gonna go with it. So um, there's that, which obviously comes as you, I feel like once I'm like, as I'm getting closer to 30, I don't care nearly as much. And it's an amazing feeling, honestly. It's like, everyone's like, oh, 20s are like the best time of your life. Like, no, like I'm not even at 30. And I'm like so excited for the 30s. Like, (laughs) you know, you have money and you don't care as much as perfect scenario. Yeah, I, I look forward to meeting you over the uh, over the 30 hill, you know, um, you know, what? the funny thing about 30 is nothing actually, there's no difference between 29 and 30. But I feel like 31 is when you really, you're like, uh Oh, I got to start driving this car a lot quicker. Like, I, I think I think you start feeling a little bit more pressure at 31. Because you know, you also, and you know, I, I don't, you know, obviously there's that double standard as well that like us guys were like, ah, I'm 40. Okay. I'm going to start a family now, whatever. Ha ha. You know, <laughs> and, and girls, you know, do have like more of that pressure. And I, I totally feel for you ladies. Um, but I, th- I think that you, I think at 30 or 31, in my case, I started to become really, really, really focused. Like that's, that was the key difference for me is that I'm not saying that like everything just came true, but I started really being like, 
what the hell is it that I want out of this thing called life? And I kept on asking my question. Whereas I think when I was in my like early to mid twenties, I was like, what the hell do I want in my life? Oh shoot. There's this cool thing going on on Friday. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be out there. And I would just kind of drink the weekend away and not have any idea about, um, life purpose and goals and so forth. So I think around 31 is when I started getting really focused and started realizing, I think when you're in your twenties, everything, you want to try a little bit of everything at the buffet. But then when you're like 31, 32, you're like, no, 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 I'm going to go for the swordfish right now. Chicken tenders. still (laughs) I totally get what you're saying. And I'm in agreement with that, but let me ask you. So, you know, you're saying as you get older, you get more focused. So, mm-hmm. you know, in that regard, like, what are you, what are the dreams that you want to have? And does that tie into podcasting? Like, what is it that you became super like hyper-focused on? And is it pertain to anything that you're now doing now? Like throwing the spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks for your dream? What are those things? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, these are really good questions. So I would consider myself, I still think that even with my podcasting, I'm, I ultimately do have that bleeding bleeding hard introvert within me. And my first passion is writing. Uh, so I've, I've written a number of like short stories. I love science fiction. Uh, I, I really love writing Twilight Zone kind of like um, twist ending sort of like short stories of that sort. So I, I and, and I love writing philosophical works. I actually just love sitting down and, and writing uh, treaties on this. And I think that humanity should work this way. And then I write these things. And then three years later, I'm like, no, 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 that was trash. I can't believe I wrote that. <laughs> you know, I, I go through that whole, that whole like writer's phase of like just sitting down. Um, there was, you know, there was this one point uh, I, in my mid twenties where I actually did take a few months and just seriously just wrote all day long. And that, that I would say is my first love, you know, that, that is my first love. And it's really difficult to, to get people to read what you've wrote. And sometimes what you wrote is not necessarily the best thing. But I think that podcasting kind of blends into my creativity in a way that's accessible to people. So I I realize that a lot of people, I'm just going to be frank here, a lot of people just don't read all that much. It's it's sad. I think that was our first podcast we ever did. Is (laughs) we ever did together was talking about the decline of reading. It's so true. But yeah. Other than the fact that, yes, that is a true statistic that people are taking information other ways, like if you could, would you be an author? And if so, is it back to your like love of like philosophy and, and, and global history? Or is it like an autobiography? Like what would you want it to be if you had to choose? Absolutely. You know, I, I think that my first love would be an author and just getting people to read my work and, um, you know, maybe having speeching. You know, I, I do see myself as being a college professor type, you know, um, so like writing books, writing articles, um, maybe teaching like high level college students that are like super, like I still love teaching, but I would love to teach super people like not have to deal with the classroom management stuff and just kind of deal with people who are like hyper interested and like hyper focused on the things that I want to talk about. So that's kind of like the vision of of what I see for myself. I think that podcasting is a, a step on that journey because it's done a lot of things for me. One, 
it has increased my level of confidence like tenfold. Like seriously, just talking every day and just hearing yourself, hearing hearing the redundancies in your thoughts, in your voice. And like, as I always said, when I edit an episode, the voice that I can't stand the most is my own. But <laughs> Brielle and I were like trying to, we're basically in the process of creating our introduction episode and like all these things. And we kept kind of looking at each other and I'm, I'm familiar with my voice now because I've done like seven episodes with you, but Brielle was like, Oh my voice. Like, like you gotta get used to it. Like I'm still not used to my, like when I get really excited and get squeaky in my laugh, like I'm still not even used to that. And it's been time, but you know, now you're like a pro you're like what 120 episodes into truth Island now. It's up yeah, there. You've done a lot. Yeah. 120th is going to be uh, recorded tomorrow, hopefully. And <laughs> did you ever imagine that you would do 120 episodes of the podcast? Like, because also, if you think about it, like one thing that struck me when I was younger is like, so I also want to be a writer, just like, just like you and podcasting is kind of a segue to actually reach the masses. But, you know, people think they can't give themselves the title of author, podcaster, uh, speaker, unless they've done these like critically acclaimed, like, you know, I'm number one bestseller. Like now I could say I'm an author. Like, no, if you wrote something, you're an author. And so now that you've done a podcast, even though it might not be number one on like the billboard and it's like, you know, up there with Tim Ferriss, like you are still a podcast and you have 120 episodes with guests and exploring all these topics to prove it. Like you've done it, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, to be honest, like my goal, like when I first started this, I had the number a hundred in my head. I was just, I don't know what it was, but something about triple digits meant that I was like in the game for real. Like, I, I don't know why that was. I, I just saw the number hundred and I fell in love with that number. And I'm like, whatever it takes, I'm going to get to that hundred. I, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like 10, 15, 20, like there is something called uh, like podcast fade, like when, like, and podcast fade happens after your seventh episode. That's it. It just takes seven. And then people are like, no one's listening. This is boring. I'm not interested in this anymore. And I was like, all right, screw that nonsense. And I know, and I'm just fighting through that. I was like, I got to get to a hundred. I don't care what it takes. And that felt really good. I think just, just cracking the hundred, the hundredth episode. And obviously I'm still recording, but it feels good. I feel like there's a lot less pressure once, once I, um, hit that hundredth episode because I showed myself that I could follow through with something. And I, I, I think, you know, whatever happens with the podcast, I feel like that in itself is, is an accomplishment that I, I, I relish in. And it's, you know, it's something to even just, you know, it's funny, even of the short stories and the things that I've written that I haven't published or, or just kind of sit there, I'm still remarkably proud and I'm, I'm proud, even if they turned out to be a flop later on, or I didn't, you know, look at it. I think just producing stuff, producing things that you're passionate about really, really, really helps with your confidence. And it really just is important. It's, it's like a part of your legacy. You know, I talked about this a little bit with my friend Alexander when he was on an episode that like, you know, legacy is not necessarily getting your face on a billboard. It's not, um, you know, reaching the New York Times bestsellers list. It could be just something that you pass down to your grandchildren, or it could just be something that you're like, hey, you know, take a look at what your daddy did when he was younger. You know, th that if you have if you have those feelings in your head and you have those expectations in your head, you know, the sky is really the limit. You know, I Jordan Peterson has this great line, like just compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to others. And once, once you really just stop comparing yourself to Joe Rogan or whatever, you can actually really relish and enjoy in your accomplishments.
completely agree in that. And as I get older, I'm realizing more and more the true competitor is with yourself and not anyone else. It's always going to be that way. Right? It just takes a really long time for you to actually understand that's the case. Not to throw you a curveball, but you know, speaking on you being proud of all the things that you've accomplished, what would you say is your version of success? Like, what does it mean to be successful in your lifetime? I think that that, you know, that's, that's a very good question. I think that, you know, I've grappled with this a lot. I think when I was much younger, I had ultra, ultra, like I had the ambition bug, like there's no tomorrow. Like I was over, probably overly ambitious. And I feel like my, my definition of success changes with time. I think that success is waking up every single day, doing something that you love so that that time just flows on by. It's kind of like that feeling that I had in the philosophy club when I was in college, like the time just flew on by. Uh, when I was at the apex of my teaching career, the days just flew on by, like that, that year that 100% of my students passed the Regents exam. That year just flew on by. And every time I'm doing podcasts, the time just flies on by. So my definition of success is, is if you're doing something every day that makes the time fly, you're pretty darn successful. Let me, let me just tell you that. It's not, it's not a bank account. It's not a bunch of Instagram followers. It's really just, is the time flying by in what I'm doing? And am I really just losing myself in it? And if you're losing yourself every day in something, as, you know, as long as it's not, you're not losing yourself in meth or something crazy like that. <laughs> you're, 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 you're winning. You're really winning at life. Because something that Brielle and I, and I know a lot of other people are working on is, you know, finding the pleasure in the day-to-day -day and it looking different than the traditional nine-to-five, go to your cubicle, work, you know, kind of, uh, you know, spending so much time somewhere else instead of doing the things you love and then actually missing out on the pleasures of hobbies and all these other things because work becomes your life. I, yeah, I love that version of success and it's growing me. It's changing every year with me too. But yeah. um, one thing I do want to touch on right before, you know, to end this episode is what would you, if you were looking back on your younger self, what is a suggestion, a tip, um, some, you know, nugget of advice that you would give your 25, you know, 20 to 25 year old self. All right. So we will go to three hours now, because that's how long it's going to take for me to fix my younger self. <laughs> no, but, but seriously, I think the, the biggest piece of advice I would have for my younger self, and this is probably advice that I should follow even more now, is start taking some really big risks. Um, I, I think taking big risks is really important. And it's something that our generation has, basically we've, we've had this beaten out of us. I, you know, you, you, you know I, I, I looked at myself when I was 17 or 18 and I was like optimistic and risk-taking, but stupid optimistic and like, 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 you know, but then I realized that you can't, you can go in the other direction. And I think going through college, working, you know, in the public schools, it kind of beats your ambition. It beats your risk-taking threshold out of you a little bit. You, um, you become extremely cognizant of how others are 
perceiving you. I think one of the cool things about being an adolescent is that you care about how your friends think of you, but you tend not to care as much about what authority thinks of you. Whereas, you know, in, when you're, you know, 25, you're like, oh my God, you know, did, did, did I talk to my boss the right way? Or maybe I should send a, an apology email or whatever. And I, I think that, that that kind of stuff in your brain is actually really toxic. I'm not saying that you should not show respect to, to, to your boss or whoever, you know, you, you do owe them respect and stuff, but you shouldn't be afraid of them and you should be willing to speak up and take risks, whether you're working a traditional nine to five or whether you're doing your own creative passion. I think that's really important. I think that's what makes life really worthwhile. And, you know, maybe I wasn't ready to start a podcast at 23. Maybe I didn't have enough to talk about. Maybe I wasn't as developed as a human being. But I think the more things that you fail at, the more risks you take, the more you feel alive. I think, I think you, I think we need, we need, Gabby, danger in our lives to feel alive. If there's no danger in your life, you are already dead. So please feel danger. You know, when I, and when I say dangerous, I, I don't mean like drunken driving or like falling off a cliff or skydiving, whatever, you know, I, I'm saying putting yourself in a, a situation where people might make fun of you or people might criticize you, that kind of danger. I think that's really healthy. And that's something that, again, I'm noticing similarly, the more risks I take, the more rewards you actually reap in the long run. So, and it makes life so exciting and interesting when you talk to people, you have more to talk about than just like what's going on at the office or, you know, <laughs> it's just more conversation. You become a more in like Throw deep in the cabin. person. <laughs> I'm, you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's, I love that. That's, you know, one thing I, I would say the same exact thing for my younger self. Yeah. And one thing about um, rewards, and, and this is a good way, especially when what you're doing is not per providing you external validation, I think the greatest rewards are actually internal. When you actually achieve something, even if no one knows about it, if you just internally achieve something, you internally know, or if you even failed, but you learned something about yourself in that process, those are actually the biggest rewards. I think the change in your character. I, I think like the podcast has even helped, you know, my relationship with my girlfriend, like just th the way that I you know, we used to, even when we would get like into an argument or something, I'd be like, yeah, 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 enough, enough. All right. And, you know, I was just, I was very lazy with my wording and I was very like, not really thought out. It actually made like the process of doing this actually improved uh, the level of communication that we have in our relationship, because I actually listen a hell of a lot more than I ever did in the past. And I'm actually a lot more methodical and a lot more thoughtful in the way that I convey an argument. And I think our relationship has grown as a result of that. So I think that those are the rewards that the Instagram followers or whatever you young people like to do. You'll never, you, no one will ever see that, but those are the rewards that you can kind of go to bed at night and cherish. I'm hoping I'm get that too, because I definitely could be a better listener. My boyfriend would love that, but um, this has been awesome. I so appreciate you coming on and chatting. And I also honestly love the fact that I kind of got to know your story better. So thank you so much for being on and uh, I hope to have you back soon. Thank you. And great questions, Gabby. Thank you so much for having me on.